All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, talking to you, talking to you from New York City on this, the 14th day of December, 2021. And I do like to remind you I'm the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com. Miningstocks.com or call our office here in New York during normal working hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I want to thank all of you for sending along your questions, comments, whatever you have to say about our show. We like to hear them. Send them to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions at number four, taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for this show, making it possible to uh, to have the show, actually. So, our sponsors for this week's show, Novo Resources, El Oro Resources, Hannon Metals, Labrador Gold Corp., Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp., and Firefox Gold. I titled today's show, Why Inflation is a Runaway Freight Train. Charles Hugh Smith and Quentin Henning return as our guests. Heated debates, free, heated debates frequently erupt over whether inflation or deflation is the most important risk factor investors need to pay attention to. First, definitions of of inflation and deflation are necessary to answer that question properly. Once uh, once definitions are established, what factors like government accounting, gimmicks, and propaganda and economic concepts need to be understood to realize the magnitude of inflation? Charles believes inflation is, in fact, out of control, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, and it is unstoppable, at least until things break down. As is so often true, inflation is mostly benefiting the rich. Strangely enough, that is a fact that is never talked about by politicians who don't want to stop the real cause of inflation, namely money printing by the Federal Reserve, because that allows them to fund their vote-buying programs. This uh, process has been going on, of course, for many decades now, but with the financial crisis of 2008 and now an overly hyped pandemic crisis has led to an acceleration of monetary inflation to the point where the system as a whole has become increasingly unstable. As Danielle DiMartino Booth recently pointed out, no matter what the Fed does, it cannot avoid a policy error. She pointed out that perhaps 20% of America's companies are zombie companies that are living on low interest rate respirators, which if switched off to allow the true cost of capital to emerge, they will not be able to survive. So the Fed cannot raise rates. But on the other hand, it cannot not raise rates because of the potential for inflation to spiral into a hyperinflationary uh, environment. 
Those and other issues will be discussed with Charles Hugh Smith in the second half of today's show. In the second segment, uh, Quentin Henning will provide an update on El Oro Resources. That's the company that's developing what is increasingly looking like a world-class bulk tonnage, silver tin-rich polymetallic uh, deposit in Bolivia. It is for sure one of my personal favorites as well as uh, one that I really highlight in my newsletter, so I'm anxious to hear what Quentin has to say about that when he joins us right after our first commercial break. But we don't have to wait until then to talk to Quentin because he's here also with me to talk about um, he's here also to talk about Irving Resources that had a, a nice um, announcement this morning, an interesting one, a new discovery. Uh, and I'm really glad that he can be with us to help us understand the significance of that discovery. Quentin is uh, a director of Irving Resources and he's also a technical advisor to the company. Uh, thanks for joining me, Quentin. Always a pleasure, Jay. It's really good to have you with us. I should mention that this is a, a project that's pretty unique in many ways because uh, Irving Resources in Japan, operating in Japan, if uh, they're successful in building up their resources they expect to build up, uh, they won't need to build a mill. They've actually Their gold is hosted in silica rock that uh, is very useful to the many different um, uh, smelters in Japan and so actually in theory at least if the project is developed we'll be able to have uh, uh, some uh, some value from the host rock which is uh, you know usually pretty unique in mining uh, but that is an advantage that it seems to me the big part of the story here and the promise of Irving Resources is the unique nature of its project if you don't have to spend millions of dollars to build a mill uh, and you, the host rock that surrounds the valuable stuff, the gold, is also valuable. That seems like a big advantage. Should tell our listeners, um, 61.8 million shares outstanding. I saw it trading at about 98 cents earlier today, giving a market cap of around 60 million in Canadian money, we're talking. So, Quentin, this morning there was a, an announcement that Irving put out on the uh, – Omu mine site, uh, a new hot springs discovery. As I understand it, this discovery is underneath an existing uh, um, closer-to-surface discovery. Uh, what can you tell us about this new discovery and its significance? Yeah, look, uh, we were doing some drilling uh, this fall to follow up on results that we had received from the previous rounds of drilling at Omu. We would it, just to cast people's minds back, we started drilling in Omui in fall of 2019, had a good round then. Uh, one of the holes that we drilled, hole 10, was one of the deepest holes, uh, and it encountered a large number of veins. I think it was on that order of 20-odd veins. In, in particular, there were some very high-grade ones towards the bottom. Uh, we followed up with some drilling in uh, 2020, of course, uh, the pandemic came around. Yeah. Uh, so it was most of the drilling we did in 2020 was focused on Nanka, which was a second target at Omui. And we, again, we had some very good results. We found um, a shallow uh, silica center system with veins underneath, uh, very promising results, lots of veins, uh, very high grade, some of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but then um, we kind of lost our footing, I'll be frank, uh, when 2021 rolled around because uh, the Japanese, with, with COVID, the Japanese government decided to limit uh, comings and goings of, of foreigners in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was very, especially with the Olympics, it was very challenging to operate in Japan uh, beyond 
the spring of 2021. But we we were able to get in there and do two holes in October and November. And the second hole that we drilled was a deeper hole testing underneath some of the shallow veins we had encountered in previous drilling. Uh-huh. Our, our thought was to simply undercut those and see if they extended to depth. And what we found instead was that there's a completely buried center system underneath the, the shallow veins that we were targeting. In other words, there's an old hot spring system. If you think of Pompeii that was buried by volcanic ash and so forth, you know, think of a hot spring system that was completely buried under some later volcanic rocks and is preserved. Uh, what does this mean? Well, it could be that this is actually the the main price at a mm. Um There's another deposit on planet Earth called uh, Fruta del Norte, which is uh-huh. – uh, in Ecuador, it was found by, um, who was it, uh, help me out, Jay, um, Aurelia, wasn't it? Right, right. I get my names confused, but uh, yeah. anyway, Keith Keith Barron. Yes, and Keith Barron. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that was a buried center system with a very high-grade system underneath it. We think we might have a similar setting here. So we're very excited. Now, the, the drill hole went across what we think is the core of the system, but the fact that it hit around 100 meters downhole uh, continuous center interval um, is very intriguing. That says there's a big, big system buried underneath there. Uh, so what we're doing right now is laying out plans for follow-up drilling uh, underneath the, uh, the what we think is the main target area or the feeder area for this old center. And we're going to come back. We're actually going to push to start drilling again in February. Uh, you know, it depends on getting the drillers in and so forth. But right now, it doesn't appear there's any issues. We've got our visas renewed for our drillers and so forth. So we got most of the bugaboos worked out this time. So I think by February, maybe mid-February, we'll be drilling and following up on this exciting new discovery. Are there some assays uh, that you're waiting on now? There, there are assays. There's going to be assays from these two holes that we drilled, mm-hmm. and I expect both of them to return some uh, vein intercepts at shallow depth. But the the center below, what I would expect to see from it, will be anomalous gold. You know, maybe in the the point X to maybe a few grams per ton range. But it, that will tell us. That will tell us hands down that there is a, a, a very prospective. Uh, second mineralized horizon at depth. One of the really intriguing things and really perplexing things about the the system system at Omui is that the initial discovery at what's called the Humpy Vein, uh, mm-hmm. the the vein actually has fragments or chunks of rock in it that were ripped up from down below, mm-hmm. and the high grade nature of these veins actually comes from the fact that these chunks of rock are encapsulated in the vein material. So the, the chunks of rock are what have the gold and silver. Mm-hmm. When we've been drilling you know, for months or for the past 24 months now, uh, we've seen lots of vein, but we haven't seen anything that qu- has quite the texture and color and nature of, of these fragments. And that was always perplexing to me. It was like, where on earth are these things coming from? They have lots of gold and silver in them. They're, you know, a very distinct, beautiful uh, kind of black and brown banded quartz. But we never, ever encountered it in our current drilling. So when we hit this center, well, guess what? I think that... I think these banded fragments are actually pieces of that center. 
Mm. So I'm very optimistic that the high-grade fragments that we see up in the Humpy vein are being ripped up and, and brought up from the high-grade system below. So I'm, I'm really encouraged, super encouraged. And so you think you might have something, a, a bigger prize than you might have first imagined. I mean, if, if you're comparing this, I know you can't do that yet because you haven't done enough work, but Fruta del Norte is a really uh, multi-million ounce deposit, I believe. Very That's bad. right. Yeah. And when they drilled it, I remember that, you know, the first holes they announced were just unbelievable. You know, they were tens of meters or 100 plus meters of a very high grade gold and silver mineralization. I'm, I'm very hopeful that we might encounter something similar to that. That would be just delightful given mm -hmm. the, the hard work we put into this project for the past few years. Do you have to, um, are they mostly Canadian drillers that are going into Japan? And is that or do they have some of their own people that can drill? We have Canadian drillers, and then we have Japanese helpers. Uh, but we are trying to get some Japanese drillers trained up. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking, you know, at the future of, of trying to incorporate more and more Japanese personnel into the drill drilling process. I think that's going to be very important, given our lesson with COVID here. Mm -hmm. I believe that uh, Irving has some connections with uh, JOGMEC, that's the uh, Japan Oil, Gas, and Metals national corporation a very very substantial company that uh, helps to get projects funded in the early going uh, am I right about that is Jogmec uh, involved with Irving there in Japan we, we, we've had a long-term relation that actually dates back to when uh, Gold Canyon was was still in existence you know mm -hmm. Gold Canyon sold the first mining uh, but our relation with Jogmec goes way back to then and we have have worked on several things with them, including, you know, the search for rare earth um, mineral deposits, things like this. Um, they're still supported. They're not really into gold so much. So this, mm -hmm. in this case, you know, Newmont is our big backer, as well as Sumitomo Corporation. So with this exercise, if, if most people, you know, know the story, they know that Newmont has basically put in all the money for the past, what, three years now, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't had to go to market. We've simply uh, done private placements with uh, with Newmont and Sumitomo. And how how much are the, these are equity interests, I guess, right? Newmont and Sumitomo. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And what sort of uh, sense of ownership between those two companies? Certainly. Look, I think Newmont is presently. I might be a bit off, but I think it's around eleven or twelve percent. And then I think Sumitomo is presently about a quarter of that, like two or three percent on that in that range. Um, you know, but they, they've got room. So like when we go back to follow up, we're, we're also gearing up work down in Yamagano, which is another target down mm -hmm. in, in Kyushu. So we'll, we'll expect, uh, more funding to come. I think they're very, very supportive of what we're doing. Well, I imagine if, and they would be, uh, able to understand this new discovery as well and, and the potential as yeah, well so as like, and it's sitting on, on, uh, with bated breath here waiting for <laughs> To see how this for some assays, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so the funding, I suppose, um, you're not too concerned about that. You're okay for the time being, I guess. Yes, uh, we have on the order of nine or ten million, I believe, in the bank right now. Uh, we have plenty of money to carry on next year. All right. Well, it's uh, just in, in closing up here now. I guess there'll be some drilling, ongoing drilling, hopefully this year, uh, assuming. Canadian uh, drillers can get in there and, uh, and Japanese drillers can be trained. And uh, so we'll have ongoing news, I suppose, hopefully. And some, of course, near term then will be, as you say, waiting with bated breath for the results from this new discovery. 
That's right. So we have a lot to look forward to this year, if things go well anyway. Very much so, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Quentin, and uh, thanks so much for sharing the Irving story. Irving will be coming on as a sponsor, I believe, pretty soon. Uh, it's a company that I follow, one I own, and I really do like. this biz- The business model seems to be extraordinary and, and quite unique, uh, so it's one I'm really watching carefully. Uh, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Quentin will be back with us uh, to give us an update on LOR Resources, another very unusual and exciting story. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to tell you that Quentin is staying with me here for this segment. Uh, He's back to talk about El Oro Resources, which is a sponsor to this show. El Oro is also a personal favorite investment of mine. It's covered in my newsletter as well. And uh, I should tell you that Quentin, uh, through his his, um, uh, affiliation with uh, Crescat Capital, is a technical advisor uh, to El Oro Resources. And El Oro's Isca Isca polymetallic deposit has massive scale. It appears to have the kind of grades, uh, silver, lead, zinc, tin, copper, the kind of, collectively, the kind of values that might make it for a very, might make for a very large-scale uh, bulk mineable deposit um, that, uh, well, you might, it might have world-class potential. That's my view anyway. Um, El Oro trades in Toronto under the symbol ELO, ELRRF in the States. Uh, you can buy it that way as I have 62.1 million shares. I saw earlier today in Canadian money, $3.59, giving it a market cap of around 223 million in Canadian money. 
So uh, thanks for sticking around with me, uh, uh, being with us for this segment. Quentin, and um, for the sake of investors who may not be aware of Elora's Esca Esca project, uh, perhaps you can give them an overview of the project and why you are quite optimistic, at least you were the last I spoke to you, about this story. Um, what, just give us a, a, a sort of a, an overview of, of the Certainly. story. Look, um, ISCA, ISCA is, is a polymetallic system. Mains, it has a lot of different metals. It's got precious metals, silver in particular, uh, but it's also got a lot of other metals, base metals included. So we got uh, zinc and lead, a bit of copper, but we have tin. We have a lot of tin. Uh, there's also things, curious things like indium and uh, cadmium and bismuth and so forth. So that it, it's a kind of a unique system in the junior space. There's not too many companies exploring in this region. But in, in terms of Bolivia, it's part of a polymetallic belt. There's actually a very uh, famous belt in south-central Bolivia, which includes the Potosi camp, which is the single largest silver deposit on earth. It's uh, the granddaddy of all silver discoveries. It was made in, I think, around 1550, 1544 thereabouts, <laughs> and produced about 1.6 billion ounces of silver. So these are absolutely massive systems. When you find one of these and it's good, they are hands down world-class deposits. They deliver huge metal endowments in silver, tin, and lead, zinc, and other metals. So that's number one reason why we're excited here. Yeah, and indium and some of those things too. I guess they could be uh, icing on the cake, possibly. But we're that's not even for discussion now, I suppose. Well, there the company put out uh, November seventeenth, another among many other previous very long intersections, uh, mineralized intersections. This was 103 meters grading 521 grams per ton silver equivalent. Uh, maybe you could talk about that in the, in the context of all the other drill holes that have been put into this. These are brecciated pipes uh, that are mineralized, and there's a whole series of these things along this massive caldera. Uh, and, and each of and some of these pipes are extremely large. Uh, but talk to us, what do you know so far based on Maybe you give us an idea of the geometry and the magnitude of of these pipes and the and the mineralization in them. Yeah, certainly. Look, uh, basically, this this volcanic center, if you think about it, is an extinct volcano mm-hmm. that erupted many many times. You know, in other words, there's different pulses of you know explosion breaches and stuff that come up through uh, the pile of volcanic rocks here. The entire thing's about two kilometers around. And there's many different pipes within that, like sub-pipes within that. So it's it's like a, a bunch of mushrooms, if you will, that have mm-hmm. come up around. And what's really interesting is when the company started to explore this, they focused in the northern area where they there was a bit of uh, artisanal tin, or excuse me, um, silver, lead, zinc mm-hmm. prospecting and mining. And... They had great results. You know, back in January, 250-odd meters of, I think, 130-gram silver equivalent. It's an outstanding result. That got everybody very excited. Uh, But if you look at the evolution as they move southward and the evolution of how this thing's unfolded, as they go south from that Santa Barbara area, they start to see more silver and tin, and then they see now copper and gold coming into the system down at Porco, which is in the southern part of the system. Mm-hmm. And this this most recent result, the the one you quoted there, 
although it's in silver equivalent, again, it's polymetallic. So there's mm -hmm. uh, very good silver values, but there's also considerable tin, uh, 0.2% tin, which is, <laughs> look at, at tin prices, they're like $40,000 a metric ton right now. It's just insane. So this is a huge, I mean, in fact, that's dollar-wise most of the endowment. But you also have copper and you have gold. Uh, the zinc and the lead have diminished when you go southward. So we're starting to see what we think is a hotter part of the system, something that's closer to the the actual, you know, mothership or magma source underlying this thing. Uh, the porphyry, the porphyritic magma that drove the system is probably sitting underneath this Porco area at depth, and and we see good evidence of that in the magnetic. So, so we're very excited. I mean, this is basically a huge, huge system. Again, world class without uh, without question, hands down, this world class system that's going to have just this whole smorgasbord of metals that uh, you know range from silver, zinc, lead to silver, tin to you know silver, tin, copper, gold. You know, it's just about anything you can dream of. So the tin though is is more to the south. Yeah, the tin grades are increasing to the south, and also the copper and the gold grades are increasing. Uh, dramatically as we go south. That that usually is a sign you're getting closer to the the actual magmatic source for the mm -hmm. metal. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I believe that most of the work so far has been done up and more to the north in the Santa Barbara pipe. Uh, and uh, I think that's where there's going to be a maiden resource coming out from there, I believe, right? Uh, Santa Barbara. Uh, yeah, it's the Santa Barbara pipe, and I think they found it actually extends maybe more to the north than initially envisioned. But is that, is the uh, the maiden resource, it's supposed to come out pretty soon, I'm not sure exactly when, uh, it, will that be confined to this uh, Santa Barbara pipe primarily, or what? That's correct, around the Santa Barbara pipe. So uh, Bill, actually Bill Pearson, uh, gave a, a summary of the plans in the Tomazos conference uh, recording. If people access it, they can hear a little bit more detail. But in short, they are focused around that north area, around Santa Barbara, because that's where they've done most of their drilling to date. Uh, they have chased the system northward. Bill seems to be very excited about what he's seeing, because every time uh, I think, okay, that's it, they're going to you know, stop here, they put in another fence of holes. Uh, so there's clearly a, a very robust system developing as around the Santa Barbara area right now. It's about 1,400 meters from north to south. It's about 500 meters east to west. And they're testing holes uh, up to about 600 meters vertically below surface. So you do a little math on that, and you get some crazy number like a billion tons of basically rock that they're targeting. And it's not to say the entire thing's going to be mineralized, but, you know, if, if you say maybe 30 or 40% of that's mineralizing, you know, this is a very big target. And you look at the weighted average grades of of the intercepts so far, they're probably running around, you know, three or four ounce silver equivalent. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about a big, big deposit. A big silver deposit. Silver primarily from the Santa Barbara. So we'd be looking more at silver zinc up there, I guess, primarily. Yes. Yeah. Silver zinc and, and lead a little bit of tin, but that's pr your primary metals. And that, that makes it very much like the San Cristobal deposit, which is a bit to the West of here. Uh, you know, lead, zinc, San Cristobal pay for mining, basically pay for mining and operation, you know, processing and stuff. And um, I would expect the same here. Uh, I would think that the base metals pay for the mining and the silver comes along. 
and is basically your prophet. So, you know, what a what an amazing story. So we could be looking at a at a pretty significant silver deposit in the making right now. And do you do you know when they're planning to come out with their initial maiden resource? Um, the assays are coming along slowly. That's the yeah. main you know, drag on things. Uh, I think Bill intended to get something put out by the end of this year, but the assay turnaround has just been uh, too slow. So I would say it's going to be sometime in the first half of next year, likely you know April, May, somewhere in there, is my best guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a baby stock as as these uh, companies that that I'm used to looking at. Uh, Two hundred twenty million dollar market cap, Canadian money, even though it's Canadian money. Um, but it sounds like when you just talk about the Santa Barbara pipe itself, we could be looking at a very significant silver equivalent deposit. And then you're looking at tin, and I, I have no idea about the economics of tin. I'd like to have you talk to us about that sometime. Uh, I don't know if you talk about it on your Crestcat uh, gets active videos or not. And I might just say to my listeners that they might want to – those of you who are following the stocks that are discussed in this on this show, many of which are covered by and owned by Crestcat, Quentin does a remarkable job of explaining the geology uh, in layman's terms for people and for investors. Uh, so those of you, I just encourage people to go and watch uh, Crestcat Gets ap- Active. Um, but so we're looking at, uh, I think something that has significant upside is what I'm what I'm believing and why I'm still an enthusiastic buyer of the stock at its current market cap. We uh, look, the tin is very exciting. Think of it as a gravy on top. I mean, it's got the silver and zinc and lead, but the tin, nobody's looked for primary tin deposits. We as geologists have done a terrible job of finding the future tin resources that the world needs. That's why tin is $40,000 a ton for peach lakes. You know, this is an exceptional discovery at a critical juncture. Where the world basically is absolutely starved for tin. What are what is tin used for these days, primarily? Uh, primarily for for electronic soldering and stuff, and then oh, okay. in, in in pipes and stuff like, you know, your water pipes. They use tin line solders and stuff. That's still the main use, and there's not a good substitute for tin. So, uh, tin is uh, critical. Just with about a minute, a minute and a half or so left here yet. Um, a lot of these polymetallic deposits are sort of complicated metallurgically. Have Has there been some metallurgical work done? They're doing metallurgical work right now. Uh, it's going to be mainly geared around the stuff around Santa Barbara because that's where the initial PEA, or excuse me, uh, resource work is going to come from in the ultimate PEA. Uh, the, look, the metallurgy, from what I can see, uh, based on the mineralogy and the core and so forth, it looks very similar to all the rest of the deposits in this region, like San Cristobal and Potosi and, and you know some of these other uh, large polymetallic systems in Bolivia. Each and every one of them produces very high-quality concentrates that are easily saleable, basically any smelter in the, on the planet. So I, I don't see any foreseeable problems. But, yes, that work is being done. The tin is an added component. It will likely be recovered through gravity separation because uh, tin occurs as cassiterite, which is a heavy mineral. So I expect mm. recoveries of tin as well. All right. How well funded is the company? And uh, maybe just round out by telling us what we should then, sort of in summary, what we should be watching out for. Sure thing. Look, the, the company, I don't know exactly how much cash they have right this second. I believe it's between 10 and 15 million Canadian dollars remaining. But they did some financing earlier this year. 
got well cashed out, but they've been burning through around a little over a million a month. Uh, I think they had say 35 million when they started their their big push with the drilling uh, back in March. So I would I would say that I'd be shocked if they're significantly below 15 million. Uh, the company's well positioned to to get this resource done. I think you'll see a re-rate, a significant re-rate, because everybody will wake up and go, wow, this thing is incredible. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, if, obviously the company needs to drill the Porco area now. That's yeah. going to be priority, too, to get that, uh, you know, lined up. So, yeah, they'll probably raise money, but probably after the resource and maybe even after PEA, I don't know. You know, start moving south then and looking at some of those. Uh, sure thing. As soon as they're done with the drilling at, uh, at Santa Barbara, which should be done here soon, uh, they'll hit Porco very hard. They've they've done a lot of geophysics and prep work you know, to help develop targets down there. I would expect them to be drilling at Porco by early next year, and that will become the new focus for the next you know 12 months or so. Excellent. Well, a very exciting story. Thank you, Quentin, for, for being with us to explain this to us uh, once again. Sure thing. All righty, folks. So we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Charles Hugh Smith will be with us to talk about why he believes inflation is a runaway freight train. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Charles Hugh Smith. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again, Charles Hughes Smith. It's been a while since Charles has been on with us, uh, regrettably so, because he puts out, every week he puts out, it seems like an awful lot of, of very um, very easy to read, easy to understand, but very important essays. Um, and uh, you can pick those things up uh, on his site, It's um, if I have it here. Um, anyway, let me just get it through his uh, through his bio here. Bio. Um, he is the author and proprietor. Okay, here we go. Of twominds.com. That's where you can go. Uh, he started publishing it in uh, 2005. So, uh, and he's the author of numerous books, including the latest uh, that was just out last month: Global Crisis, National Renewal, a Revolutionary Grand Strategy for the United States. 
and I hope that we can talk to him a little bit about, or he can talk to us a little bit about that book, because I think it's, I do have a copy of it, but just got it and haven't had the time to look at it as thoroughly as I would have liked to. So uh, I'm hoping he can give me a bit of a teaser to stimulate me to spend uh, some, some uh, quality time in the book. Thank you for uh, joining us again, Charles. Well, Jay, it's always my pleasure, and um, I, I I know that your readers and um, and listeners are always um, attuned to understanding the fundamentals beneath the noise and the, and mm-hmm. the surface. Mm-hmm. That's what we try to do, of course, and I know that you do that as well as anybody. Um, so we'd like to have sort of one of your more recent, I think this is November 29th, Why Inflation is a Runaway Freight Train. Of course, today I think we saw new new higher PPI numbers, the highest we've seen, I don't know, since I was a young person back in the 70s. Uh, how do, first of all, I'd like to ask, how do you define inflation? Because I know there seems to be different definitions of it. Most people think of inflation as simply the CPI, uh, which is, uh, as you point out very well in your essay, uh, you know, not, not very well understood. And, of course, I think probably government can play games uh, with how they do the numbers and so forth. But the Austrian School of Economics, they define it simply, inflation simply as the uh, uh, money creation. And, you know, the more money you print, the higher your inflation is. And they maintain that we've had an, a massive amount of inflation over the last number of decades in the financial markets with stocks and bonds, you know, going to levels that make seem no seem to be completely detached from reality these days. Uh, but what is your definition of inflation? Well, that's a great starting point, Jay. And um, my definition is um, more about purchasing power uh, mm-hmm. of, of your wages, like your, your earnings. Sure. What, what can you buy in terms of goods and services? And so um, if you're buying, if, if the cost of what you're buying has gone up, but you're getting the same quality and quantity or less, mm-hmm. that's inflation. And of course, that's what we see. And we see it in, in so-called shrinkflation, right? Where the, the package of cornflakes is now like five ounces less or the candy bar is now a half ounce less. And yet it, the cost is the same. So we're getting less for our money. And of course, you and I being old enough to remember what how this works in the 70s is mm-hmm. your, your wages never seem to keep up. And that's, that's the danger with inflation is inflation can run away from you. And so you get a 5% raise and you think, well, I'm doing okay. But if inflation's at 10%, you're still losing ground. And I think that's where we are now, where mm-hmm. everybody's losing ground except those people who are riding these um, asset bubbles you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, the, the Austrian definition, it certainly explains – I think explains much of why we have this redistribution of wealth to a very small number of people because for decades this has been going on. The people closest to the feeding trough are the ones that seem to do the best, those that are somehow attached to the military-industrial complex, which are all those government programs, um, and you know they're funded with money created out of thin air. And it hasn't been a problem to such a great extent until just recently um, but I'd like to, you know, before we explore the reasons for that, maybe I'd like to just get into your essay a little bit. Uh, you stated there what's missing uh, in most of these debates between those who think that deflation is a problem and those that 
think that inflation is what we need to be paying attention to. You said what's missing in most of those inflation-deflation debates is a comparison of scale. Could you comment on that? Yeah, and what I mean is um, at the household level, um, if if your rent or property taxes go up by a few thousand dollars a year, um, that's uh, logged in the in the consumer price index as a very modest amount, right? It's like, oh well, that that went up, uh, you know, two two percent, but but the <laughs> amount of money was large. Uh-huh. Where then they say, oh, the price of jeans imported from Pakistan dropped twenty percent. Wow, that's <laughs> fantastic. Now, you only buy a couple pair of, of blue jeans a year or whatever. So let's say that's $100. So you've, now that costs 80 Okay, I've saved 20 bucks. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, my other costs have gone up by $2,000, $3,000, and $1,500. Mm-hmm. You know, child care, health care, rent, property taxes, those things go up by thousands. And yet the savings that are supposed to offset all that are a few hundred bucks. Yeah, the blue jeans got cheaper, the TV got cheaper by a few hundred bucks, but those aren't essentials. I don't buy those every every week. Everything that I have to pay has gone up by leaps and bounds. And so that scale is what's uh, missing from all these calculations. So we're seeing inflation, we're seeing numbers, and I agree that it seems to be, at least from what we hear, uh, the statistics is that the wages are not keeping up. Uh, I know wage inflation is the first time that I can remember since the 70s. It's been a real big problem. Uh, But, you know, supply and demand, of course, are always the dynamics that determine price. Uh, Scarcity seems to be a main driver of prices, rising prices now. Scarcity of goods. uh, What are some of the factors that are leading to such a scarcity of goods now? uh, And what are the prospects of the global economy overcoming them? Well, that's a great question, Jay. And, and I, think we, I think the key thing that we, we need to focus on that, that gets lost in the shuffle is how dependent America has become on resources and goods from overseas. So that means we're dependent, and in many cases, entirely dependent on these long supply chains, which are fragile due to their length and the number of intermediaries involved, and all these other issues like um, once you give that power and control to foreign nations, well, then you've given them the opportunity to blackmail you or raise prices. And there's, um, since you've now become dependent on them for, uh, as the primary source of these goods, well, then they can raise prices and we can't do anything about it because we've shipped our supply chain overseas. And so that dependency is a, is a real uh, source of of higher prices. And um, the fragility of this long supply chain is also a problem because as I mentioned, everybody along that long supply chain has to still make money. If they don't make money, they go out of business. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, everybody wants somebody else to absorb the costs, uh, of, you know, the higher costs of shipping and production and labor. And it's all like, <laughs> at some point, somebody has to, has to pay everybody in that long supply chain. And there can be dozens of different companies, right? And, in like any kind of electronic device or manufactured uh, good. And, and everybody there has to make money. And if they can't make money, then they'll just close their doors. And then you've got a supply disruption. We certainly, we're certainly seeing that. And of course, they've been exacerbated by, uh, by the pandemic, uh, by the COVID issues. Um, and, um, but yeah, we, so we've made ourselves dependent on, on China. I guess it worked very well for a while, didn't it? We, 
got rid of our high-priced labor. Um, the middle America that was doing relatively well when I was young are, are now, you know, um, having tremendous problems of all kinds, um, uh, opiate deaths and, you know, drug addiction, all kinds of issues and unemployment and hopelessness. It seems to be so much a part of the uh, Midwestern landscape in many ways these days. Uh, so we're also, though, and that contributes to another problem, though, all these issues, these health issues and so forth, uh, to the labor issue, um, you know, in your November 29th article, you talked about the scarcity of labor that is pushing labor inflation higher, and you noted at least five factors that you believe suggest that rising labor costs are here to stay at least for a while. Could you talk about those? Yeah, and um, I'm... It's, this is such a fascinating topic, Jay, because those of us who've been around a few decades, um, you know, we remember when labor had more power. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, can kind of, yeah. you can kind of talk about the balance of power between labor and capital, right? Mm-hmm. The, the owners of capital and, and, and the people who have to work for a living. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that there's a lot of academic studies out there, like I've, I've posted one from the Rand Corporation, that, that it's clear that capital had the upper hand for the last 45 mm-hmm. years. You know, mm-hmm. the, the end of sound money, right, 1971, mm-hmm. and then high inflation, the first oil shock, all those things occurred in the early 70s. And, and all the power kind of went to capital. And so mm-hmm. they all the gains of productivity in, a, in our society, most of those gains went to those the owners of capital. And, um, and of course, if you, you as you say, the, you create money and debt out of thin air, that, mm-hmm. benef- that benefits those who already have the capital too. So wages have, have really not kept up. They've stagnated since um, the, the mid-70s. And so now we're starting to see that the scarcity of labor is, is generating um, a little change in that power structure. And, and the reason why is if you can't find the people to do the work, you've got to pay them more money. And as I said, this is pricing on the margin, meaning that if you have, you've been paying your employees eight fifty an hour and the only way that you can retain them is to pay 12 an hour, you, mm-hmm. have, you, can't, just, you can't just pay your new, the first, that higher wage to the first two <laughs> you got to pay it to the other hundreds because they're right. going to find out real quick. <laughs> and so then you get wage, um, so-called wage price, uh, a spiral. But I, I think that this is what's missing from most people looking at this is wages have been suppressed for decades. And so mm-hmm. playing, playing catch up is kind of like what's happening, but it's surprising everybody because everyone was used to people just accepting wages that weren't really uh, a living wage. And, um, just real quickly, one of these, this is the problem with social mobility. When you and I started out, we could earn a kind of low wage and still look forward to eventually being able to buy a small house somewhere. Uh-huh. Well, that's no longer possible. So this whole dilution of money and, and favoring um, the wealthy and uh, those closest to the central bank money spigot, this has created huge inequality and, and people are starting to awaken to this and saying, well, I, I, I need more money just to be able to pay these higher costs. So mm-hmm. that's an element. And another one is the health issue you talk about. Now, we can talk about the effects of long COVID. We don't know what they are, but we do know statistically the number of people uh, who are dis, uh, disabled or claiming dis, uh, disability has soared, you know, from a couple percent of the population to like, I think it's 9% or something of the working population is no longer in the workforce. And so, um, and baby boomers are retiring. A lot of them 
woke up in COVID and said, why am I working? I'll just go ahead and retire. So there's a lot of different elements to why there's a scarcity of labor. And one last element is people have decided, I think I'm going to favor my family instead of my job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a cost as well uh, when, uh, when parents uh, – are not spending quality time with their children and with with each other. Uh, it has results that aren't positive as well a lot of times. So, I guess balancing it out. And uh, if, if you know if you're working extremely hard and going nowhere, uh, you don't see the hope of of your hard labor gaining anything materially. Then sometimes it might be actually might be beneficiary in many ways to uh, sort of settle down and and pay some quality time and with your with your loved ones for sure so i guess those are decisions that people are making uh but it seems to me that what we just did as a country though was uh we took advantage or at least capital took advantage of low wages overseas uh we got rid of the the higher paying jobs we broke the back of the union essentially the unions that were so powerful in the 70s yet 60s and 70s uh and and then I, I've always believed that uh, owning the world's reserve currency also required us to make sure that we were uh, that we were running deficits, trade deficits all the time. So that way, there was enough money to flow around the globe that we could have the world's reserve currency and the uh, uh, you know and, and and the liquidity and the depth that is required of the world's reserve currency. But uh, all right, so. These are things, though, so we have a shortage of, of labor, we have a shortage of goods, and and yet um, we keep printing money. The Fed keeps printing money, I guess. Um, I mean, what what do you think the prospects are of allowing interest rates to return to whatever the market rates, <laughs> what the markets would require? Uh, you know, if we went back to sort of a free market system that, that priced money based on supply and demand, and we didn't keep increasing the supply by printing more money to the Fed. Uh, what? How would that shake out? Well, that's a great, uh, great question, Jay. And I think that's really the question of our era: is is do we do we let markets uh, discover price, and um, or do we just keep sort of manipulating the system to create like phantom wealth for the mm-hmm. few at the expense of the many? And I think what what you um, and your, many of your guests focus on and what I focus on too is what's the source of stability? In other words, what, can, what makes a system uh, robust, uh, resilient, um, adaptable? Well, it, it's basically market forces, transparency, competition, accountability, all the things right. that have been lost or eroded in America. So when you just make a, a conjure trick about, you know, you're conjuring money out of thin air and creating these kind of financial tricks, to keep the illusion of, of stability, you're actually undermining and eroding the sources of stability. And so then you get this unstable system, which is what we have now, where the Fed has to print even more trillions because the whole thing is so shaky, right? Because there's no real price discovery and risk isn't priced at all. And so what would happen if we went back to even 5 or 6% interest rates? You know, you and I remember when a home mortgage was 10, 11, or 12%. Well, of course, that would break the government, right? Because the government can only borrow and, and pay interest on $25 trillion in debt at 1% or 2%. Once it's 5%, then the government, virtually all the tax revenues just go to pay interest. So um, I don't see how that – I think we've lost the opportunity 
that that we had say 20 years ago to write the system. So now we're facing um, some really uh, difficult kind of adjustments back to a, a, a system that has dynamic stability. You know that that's what you get with the market and transparency and accountability. So and competition. So to, we need to get there. And it's like, can we get there without declaring national insolvency? I, I think that's an open question. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I hope so. But mm-hmm. I, I'd rather I'd rather take the shock and let the asset bubbles deflate because mm-hmm. they're gonna they're gonna pop anyway. So mm-hmm. we might as well get it over with and then we can move on to a a more stable future with as you've often said, a, a sound money system. Mm-hmm. Well, if we ha- if the asset prices deflate, uh, would we still have inflation? Because you know your your premise is that we're inflation is a runaway freight train. Right. Well, it's gonna. I think we would still have inflation as long yeah. as we're de- dependent on foreign sources for resources mm-hmm. and goods because they, mm-hmm. they we've ceded control to them. So n- even if we had a recession, it doesn't mean that we're going to suddenly have uh, lower prices because. Those um, those suppliers uh, define um, the price, you know, and so we're going to have to reshore our entire production and supply chain in order to gain regain control of supply. Um, geez, my engineer is telling me I only have three minutes left, and I wanted to ask about your book. I wanted to have you talk about it. Uh, what, real quickly, what do the deflationists get wrong? What are they failing uh, to see? I, I think they're failing to see that. Um, the, the, the national dependency that we've uh, created on, on, on outside sources for supplies. And, and they're, they're confusing um, deflation of assets with, with deflation of prices of essentials. So you can get an asset deflation, uh, but, but that doesn't mean that gasoline is going to get cheaper because that's, um, that's a natural resource. And so there's a lot of other factors that, that don't have anything to do with how much money the central bank is printing. Uh, all right, your book, Global Crisis National Renewal, uh, a revolutionary grand strategy for the United States. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, it's uh, to me, it's. I think I need to, to read this book and then have you back and, and discuss several very important aspects of it. But just give us a, an overview of it with two minutes left here about. Great. Well, I think the um, what academic studies and history have found is that there's two things that bring down nations and empires you know, extreme inequality and scarcity of essentials. Those are the two things that break countries, right? Because if you can't afford bread or rice, then you, you're, you're, um, you're going to get desperate. And if soaring inequality means all the wealth and power are held by a handful of people, that's also not, uh, that's just not a, uh, a recipe for stability. So the U.S. has both of these issues. We, we have the most extreme uh, wealth inequality and power inequality in our history, in, in my view, and we're dealing with global scarcities now. You know, we've, be, we've globalized, and so now we're exposed to global scarcity. So we need to, like, focus on restoring um, stability and balance in the United States by, by dealing directly with this vast inequality and with these scarcities of essentials. We have to start um, producing more ourselves and sharing the wealth much more broadly than we have for the past 20 years. And that, I think, will require revolutionary change. Not, not overthrowing the government, but simply change that's much more dramatic than what people have been accustomed to. 
I guess maybe that's why you put the word revolutionary uh, in parentheses in your in your title. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, 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 what I'm looking forward to is a duly elected government that uh-huh. that takes that that starts taking back the country from um, pr- parasitic elites. <laughs> I would, I would, I would say amen to that. Uh, we'll have to leave it go at that, Charles. But I want to have you back sometime soon to talk more in depth about your book because I think it's a must-read and very, very important uh, things to say there. So thanks so much for being with us, and we'll look to do it again sometime soon. Thank you, Jay. Folks, that is all the time we have uh, today. Next week, I'm going to be, uh, James Turk is going to be with me, talk about his new book called Money and Liberty, The Pursuit of Happiness and the Theory of Natural Money. Uh, maybe we can get to where Charles wants to go if uh, with some of the ideas that James has there. And Quentin Henning will be with me once again next week to talk about SK Mining. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Labrador Gold is an exploration company focused on its flagship Kingsway project located in central Newfoundland Gold District. Labrador Gold's first phase drilling program has successfully identified high-grade gold mineralization, including a 3.6-meter intercept, grading 20.6 grams per ton gold, and 1.85 meters, grading 50.38 gram per ton gold. The company has approximately $35 million in the treasury and is led by a world-class team of CEO Roger Moss and technical advisors Sean Ryan and Quentin Henney.